Content warning. This podcast may contain unsuitable language, depictions of adult themes, and content of a violent and distressing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is Crime Trials, Episode 3, Part 2, a show that focuses on the stories behind the crimes as they work their way through our criminal justice system from tragedy to verdict. Hello, listeners. The team behind Crime Trials would like to thank you for your patience with our delayed release schedule. We have a committed and talented team and plan to be here for the long haul. You may know many of us from other shows that we've worked on. I'm JT, and I also co-host the popular Brew Crime and True Crime and Wine Time. And according to our writer, I'm a talented voice actor who also works on many other podcasts. Kat's the executive producer and creative director behind several other podcasts. Our writer Stephanie has written for many shows you may have heard, including Minds of Madness, Invisible Choir, Obscura True Crime, and many others. We plan to release episodes bi-weekly, and that is still the plan going forward. However, due to several bouts of COVID throughout our team, We were delayed with these episodes. For that reason, we are releasing part two of this story early, and as quickly as we can get it out. If you haven't heard episode two, part one of this story, please go back and listen to that episode before continuing on. When we left off in our story, Lindley Rennick was on trial for her role in her husband, Ben Rennick's cold-blooded murder. The prosecution began their case-in-chief, calling the Rennick family babysitter to the stand. She was able to confirm that Ben and Lindley used her regularly for their date nights, one of which was scheduled the night of Ben's murder. She confirmed that Lindley communicated with her throughout the day, only to call her later and cancel. Lindley made sure to tell the babysitter that she was worried about Ben, because he wasn't answering the phone and had failed to pick up the children all the while knowing that Ben was dead at her own hands. The coroner testified that he was originally called to the scene for a death involving a snake. That changed quickly once he viewed Ben's body. It was clear to the coroner that Ben was a gunshot victim. He determined that some of the shots were administered into Ben's back, and the rest at point-blank range while Ben was still on the ground. There were divots in the ground underneath Ben's body where the bullets hit the concrete floor, passing. It's your understanding that that bruising is as a result of the gunshots. Is that fair? Yeah, generally, the way it's been explained to me is that's the pressure inside the head that causes that bruising. From Nobody punched him in the face as far as we know. Not that I know of. Exhibit 33? That's a uh, bullet wound to the back of the head. And that was an entrance wound, is that right? It looks like one, yes. Yeah. And 34? Yeah, to my understanding, that was a portion of Ben's skull that had basically blown out due to pressure. 35? Uh, Insurance wound to the jaw. 36? Exit wound to the jaw. Is that the same? Is it your understanding that the that's the bullet that went in the left side of his jaw and came out the right? That's my understanding, yes. Uh, 37? Yeah, gunshot wounds to Ben's back. And those appear to be entrance wounds as well, is that right? Yes, to me they do. And 38? Yeah, more more shots on the back. 39? Sure, that's a, that's a, actually the projectile or the bullet that actually lodged in his shoulder there. So. And since there's a bullet inside that's an exit wound, would you agree? I would agree, yes. Exhibit 40? Uh, uh, that's kind of in his elbow or in the bicep area, but again, you can kind of see the shiny uh, projectile. During the trial, while the jury was shown various photos depicting the devastating effects of the bullets on Ben's body, Lindley would look at the jury with a quivering lip. She appeared to take slow, exaggerated, shallow breaths to calm herself down. As if the horrific injuries were just as upsetting to her, as they were to the jury. 
Sometimes this kind of behavior of attempting to connect with the jury and garner their sympathies can earn an admonishment from the judge, usually at the request of the prosecution. However, in this case, it was something never addressed by the court, and something that Lindley was allowed to continue throughout her trial, each time appearing authentically fragile and sincere. After hearing from a friend of Ben's in the reptile industry, the prosecution called Eric Bremer to the stand. Eric Bremer was Lindley's sales rep for her radio ads for her spa. He was also one of several married men she was having an affair with. And I'm not trying to pry on your issue, but when you say physical, it turned into a sexual affair between the two of you. That is correct. You were both married? Yes. And it, you're aware, you may not be aware of the date, but on, on June 8th of 2017 is when her husband was murdered. Yes. Okay. Prior to that date, uh, when in relationship to it, did, did your relationship become sexual, if you recall? Around December of 2016, something like that. Okay, so, uh, I hate to do math, but maybe seven, eight months before. Sounds right. And after Ben was murdered, did, did the relationship, in, in, in not the business, but the, the personal side of it, did that continue? I did for a few months, until about September. And when did that end? Around September of that time. Uh, just, it ended. It seemed like there was a lot going on. Are we in 17? We're in 2017. So a couple months after Ben's murder, Correct. you continued this relationship, but it ultimately ended a couple months later. That's right. Despite testimony, we will hear later that Lindley was in a catatonic state following Ben's murder. We also learn that she somehow was able to continue her affair with Eric Bremer. We will also hear testimony that simultaneously to this sexual relationship, Lindley was also able to continue her sexual affair with another married man, Brandon Blackwell. Just six months after Ben's death, Lindley would be announcing her and Brandon's pregnancy on Facebook to family and friends. For someone in a catatonic state, barely able to care for her children after her devastating loss, she still managed to entrap several men with her compelling demure fragility. On cross, Mr. Bremer testified that his sexual encounters with Lindley took place at her spa prior to Ben's death, and after Ben's death, they took place in his car, like two love-struck teenagers. He also admitted to telling the police that Lindley was the nicest person he had ever met, and he always walked away from their encounters a better man. I'm sure his wife at the time would disagree with him. On redirect, Mr. Bremer testified that since their relationship had ended, he no longer held Lindley in such high regard. He also confirmed for the jury that Lindley never told him her version of the truth, that she was present at the time of Ben's murder. Next, the prosecution called their star witness, Ashley Shaw, to the stand. Ashley testified that she had previously worked with Lindley at another spa before coming over to work as her office manager. The two became close, and Ashley was often the sounding board for Lindley's complaints about her marriage. Ashley hired her friend, Rachel Hunt, to work at the spa as well. Rachel was a former roommate of Ashley's, and later, after Ben's murder, she was a bridesmaid in Ashley's wedding. Ashley testified that Lindley gave Ashley a daily rundown of her marriage and the complaints she had with Ben. She also testified that Lindley was having a hard time meeting the financial obligations of the spa. There were bill collectors regularly showing up, including the landlord, to collect past due rent. Ashley felt that Lindley was using the money she could have been using to pay the bills on advertising with her former lover, Eric Bremer. Were you aware during the same time frame of June of 2017, Lindley engaging or beginning another uh, sexual affair? Yes. And, and who was that individual? Um, Brandon Blackwell. And do you know when her affair with Brandon began in relationship to, to Ben's murder? Uh, very shortly beforehand. And then uh, it continued on afterwards? Yes. And when you say very shortly, are we talking days or weeks? Uh, I would think weeks, I think. I'm sorry? Uh, weeks, I believe. 
Lindley shared with Ashley that Ben was abusive. She told her that she woke up once in the middle of the night and Ben was on top of her, raping her in her sleep. She also mentioned that she couldn't leave Ben because he was financially supporting the spa and had all of the resources to take her children from her. Which meant divorce wasn't an option. Ashley was shocked by this revelation and felt awful for Lindley. So naturally, the two engaged in a plot for Lindley to murder her husband, as one does. Ashley continued her testimony, stating that Lindley asked her if she knew of anyone who could get her a gun. Neither of them knew of anyone with an untraceable weapon. Next, they came up with a plan to murder Ben by poisoning him. Ashley testified that all of the murder conversations were initiated by Lindley. Ashley was able to get a hold of some Percocet pills. They researched on the computer and decided that 15 pills would be sufficient to kill Ben. Lindley added the pills to a protein shake for Ben approximately 7 to 10 days prior to his murder. Of course, we know now that the pills didn't kill Ben, but they did make him very ill that night. To avoid suspicion, Lindley had to pretend to be sick too in another bathroom. Later in a text message, Ben would chillingly joke that Lindley tried to kill him, never knowing that the woman he supported, married, raised children with and cherished, wanted him dead. The next morning she called Ashley to tell her their grandmaster plan had failed. Um, she called me and said that he was very sick all night, threw up, um, but he was still alive. Did she indicate to you whether she also drank the same concoction? No, she drank the other, the other. When you say the other, the one without the pills in it. So she had one, uh, a drugged up concoction and one without. Yes. Did she indicate to you how she acted at home, drinking the the normal drink? She pretended to be sick. So she she acted like she and Ben both when she was at home that they were both sick. Yes. Did she describe how he was in terms of sick? What was wrong with him or how he acted? Um, he was throwing up all night, very in and out of it, delirious. Now, uh, when she called you to tell you this information, did she ask you to go somewhere or meet her or something like that? Yes. Okay, what did she tell you? Um, we were going to meet up. Um, I believe she, we were going to meet at the spa, I believe, but then she drove to my house and we went to the spa. Lindley wasn't going to allow any grass to grow under her feet. She was on to the next plan. At the spa, they discussed their need for a gun. That conversation led to the potential involvement of Lindley's ex-boyfriend, Michael Humphrey, in the murder plot. What does she tell you about Michael Humphrey being her ex-boyfriend and why he might be somebody she should seek out to murder her husband, Ben? Um, she said that he had a prior record of um, being in trouble, and so she thought maybe he would know someone or hung out with people that had records of being in trouble or, you know, a history, so she thought maybe he would help her. Did she tell you what kind of trouble he'd been into in prior? I don't know. Uh, after she... Did, did she have other thoughts besides this ex-boyfriend, or was it just a matter of trying to figure out who in her life could help her, and this is somebody she came up with? Yes, yeah, that's correct. It was somebody she out. Came... Yeah. The problem was she hadn't had contact with Michael for a long time and needed to find him. Ashley looked on a criminal database and found an address for Michael Humphrey. This prompted the two to go on a field trip looking for a would-be murderer. As one does, they found Michael, made small talk, and then asked if he'd be interested in a little bit of murder. Apparently, he wanted to think about the job offer overnight. Even a meth addict had the good sense to contemplate being an accessory to murder. His contemplation, though, didn't last long. The next day, Michael went to the spa to have a massage and discuss options with Lindley. Um, she said that he had a family member that had ties to a group of people that would um, possibly kill Ben. And did, he, did she give this group of people a name? She called them the Mexican Mafia, that's what she called them. Okay, and this is what Lindley is telling you happened, but you don't know if it... Do you know whether this is actually what occurred or not? No, I'm sorry, I don't. What does she tell you in addition to that information? Um, that it would, she would have to have money to pay them. 
And did she discuss with you the amount of money? Um, I don't know that we discussed the exact, but it was a high amount because she didn't have the money to pay them. So she told you, I need this money and I don't have enough. Basically, yes. Because of that, is does she tell you what, what's going to occur next? Um, yes, she said that Michael was going to provide her with a gun. And does she tell you that in that same conversation or is this a later date? I think it's a later date, yes. So after this conversation, learning about this other group, maybe possibly the Mexican Mafia, yes, you discuss the amount, correct? Yes. Okay. And later on, then she just tells you, I don't think I can do that, but Michael's going to provide me a gun. Yeah, she had went to his house in between that time, I believe, and that's where they discuss the details behind him um, providing her a gun. While Michael was willing to provide her with an untraceable gun, he was not willing to shoot Ben himself. Once Lindley was in possession of the gun, she still needed a driver. She couldn't risk her car being seen at Rennick Reptiles while she was establishing an alibi by pretending to be at the spa. And tell the jury, according to Lindley, what, what role her kids were going to play in the murder of her husband. Um, Lindley was supposed to pick the kids up, but she was going to text Ben that she wasn't feeling well, so then he was supposed to go pick the kids up. And if, and, and why was that part of the plan if he was supposed to go pick up the kids? Because she needed a reason for the school to call her and tell her that he didn't show up. And why wouldn't he pick up the kids? Because he wouldn't be alive anymore. So he was going to, he was supposed to pick up the kids, but when he gets killed, he can't. The school's going to call her at the spa and say, hey, Ben never picked up the kids. Correct. And she's going to have what? Jackson, Your Honor. Leading. Jackson, you overruled. And she was going to have what by being at the spa? An uh, alibi, I guess, or, uh, yeah, an alibi. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Did, what about you? Were you going to have a role while they were gone? Were you going to play some sort of role in this, in this murder? Um, she asked me to text Ben from her phone um, and say that she wasn't feeling well. It wasn't just Lindley who had to establish an alibi. Ashley and Rachel felt like they had to establish an alibi as well. While Lindley and Michael were off murdering Ben, Ashley and Rachel conducted a series of errands where they were on camera, including making a bank deposit. On direct, Ashley admitted to playing a role in the conspiracy to murder Ben. She was interviewed several times by the police, each time denying her involvement or any knowledge of Lindley or Michael's involvement. The day of the murder, the police downloaded everyone's phone and knew that Ashley, Michael, and Lindley had all exchanged cryptic texts on the day of the murder and the day after the murder. Only after Brandon Blackwell went to the police and filled them in on the details of the murder did they go back to Ashley escort her to the police station, and confront her. That confrontation resulted in a plea deal. If Ashley was 100% truthful, and her story could be independently corroborated, she was offered a proffer agreement, which resulted in full immunity for her role in Ben's murder. Rachel Hunt was offered and accepted the same deal. On cross-examination, defense attorney Hesseman aggressively questioned Ashley, accusing her of making up Lindley's involvement in order to avoid the hassle of proving herself innocent. He testified more than he asked questions, yet the prosecutor rarely objected. He told Ashley that the district attorney told her she could either be on Team Lindley and go to jail, or she could be on Team Missouri and go home to her son. Ashley testified that Lindley seemed in shock when she came back from Ben's murder. She went straight into her room with a bath and shower. She took off all of her clothes, and Ashley scrubbed Lindley down with soap and water. Then Michael came into the room and asked what Ashley knew. Lindley said she didn't know anything. Ashley asked him to take Lindley's clothes and dispose of them. Michael refused. After Lindley showered... She dressed in fresh clothing and waited for the call from her children's school and began the charade of finding Ben's body. After finding Ben's body, she was later tested by law enforcement for gun residue. The prosecution alleged 
The shower was part of the plan to avoid getting caught for Ben's murder in furtherance of the conspiracy. Lindley was dressed in dark clothing, but Ashley didn't see any blood on her or her clothing. She also didn't see any blood on Michael Humphrey. The defense felt this was proof that Lindley wasn't the shooter. What did you tell your son? Aren't you tired of everybody looking at you as a murderer when you really aren't a murderer? Aren't you tired of that? I don't know who's looking at me. I don't know. I don't care what people think, I guess. Aren't you tired of this charade of going around and telling people you and Lindley killed Ben when you didn't and you're just saying this because you don't want to go to prison and be accused of murder? Don't you want to come clean now? That's not true, sir. I wish, I very much wish that was the truth. Despite Attorney Hesseman's best efforts, Ashley Shaw was a very good witness and many of the other witnesses independently corroborated her version of events. One of those witnesses was Michael Humphrey, who had already been convicted of the first-degree murder of Ben Reddick. As you may recall, Michael also made a deal with the prosecutor. In exchange for providing truthful testimony in Lindley's trial, he would receive a reduced sentence of life with the possibility of parole. He corroborated Ashley's version of events, adding in details of which she wasn't privy. He discussed dating Lindley in the past and taking her to shoot guns. He testified she was proficient in how to use a handgun. Prior to his murder conviction, he had been on probation for a heroin-related charge. At some point during this conversation, did Lindley ever explain to you or give you a reason why she tried to kill her husband and why she was now seeking out somebody to, to shoot him? She said that there was um, different physical and sexual abuse going on, yeah, like raping and, you know. Did she go into detail with you? A little bit, yeah. What did she tell you? Um, one one thing was that he had climbed on top of her and forced himself on her in the middle of the night. Another one was that she had woke up to um, fingers. Um, I don't know how you guys want to. And I know it's unpleasant. We don't know, but go ahead and use her exact words if you remember. Um, to, to, to her being fingered, and she was trying to uh, say no to it. Did she describe any other physical or emotional abuse during this conversation? Or um, just that they would they would have different fights around the kids that would they would kind of turn physical-ish, I mean, push-shove kind of. And, and as a result of being there... Did they say not that we're not only looking for somebody to shoot him, but did they ask something specific of you? Not at that time. They, they just was generalizing that, that they wanted to try to find somebody to shoot him. And did you give them any advice with respect to that? I told them I was not, not going to be a part of that. We know that later Michael changed his mind about helping Lindley. However, he maintained his stance that he was not the shooter. He had a different version of events that day. Whenever I went up there to go get a massage that two or three days later, whatever it was, um, I actually took her my gun. When you say you took her your gun, which are you talking about the gun the two of you had previously shot together? Correct. That Springfield you yes. mentioned? Yes. The one she could handle okay? Right. Why did you want to take that gun to her on that occasion? From what she was describing to me, I... I Thought she could use it in a case of, like, if she only had that option left, it'd be self-defense. Because she said she couldn't leave there, so. So you go up there with, with, with the gun. Yep. Is the gun have ammo with it? It does. It's loaded. Okay. And so when you say it's loaded, uh, it's got a, a magazine full of ammunition and the magazine's in it. Correct. Is a round chamber <clears throat> in it. Yes. So all you got to do is go bang. You got it. Michael told her she could use the gun in self-defense if Ben got physical with her. She told him she didn't think she could do it by herself. A few days later, she went back to Michael's house, asked him again for help killing Ben, and promised to, quote, make it worth your time, end quote, but never discussed a specific dollar value. Again, Michael declined. However, however, he did agree to go to Lindley's house with her to gather some clothes to stay with her dad. He believed when they were heading to Ben's work, there would be a peaceful resolution. She continued to text him that morning, 
asking him if he was going to make it. He sent a text back, asking her if she wanted a, quote, pep rally, end quote. This meant a hit of methamphetamine to settle her nerves. Lindley declined the offer. When he pulled up to the spa, Lindley came right out, wearing black leggings and a black hoodie, with the hoodie up to avoid being seen leaving the spa that day. She was carrying a bag, but did not realize that Lindley had brought the gun with her. He was surprised that Lindley wanted to take his car, given his car trouble that morning and the last few days. The drive took about 30 to 40 minutes. The conversation on the way was about her intention to gather some belongings and leave. As they pulled into Rennick Reptiles, they saw Ben's Jeep in front of the building. So let me stop you. You get out of the car, she gets out of the car, and, and as you're next to the car, she pushes, presses something against your, your back, this area. Right. And you look down and you see what? I can see the handle of the gun. And, and when you see that, what is your reaction? I shoved it back at her and asked her basically what, what the hell she was doing. And, and while this is transpiring between the two of you, what happened? Or who, who approaches or comes out? Ben came out the door at the, the exact time all this was going down or just and, as it was. And is he, do you know what he's doing or can you see? Um, if I remember right, he had like some, some bag or box or something in his hand to throw away. And, and when you're, you're doing this with her, he's coming out. Tell us the next thing that is said or transpires between the now the three of you there. So she walks around, kind of circles behind me this way, ends up telling him that I'm, I'm there to look at snakes um, and that she had known me from or since high school or something, something to that effect, that I was a friend from high school or something like that, yeah. So she tells him a lie. Right. About why you're out there. Right. Ben seemed surprised and then invited Michael inside to look at snakes. Lindley took the trash from him and threw it out, then followed them both inside. And by the time he washes his hand and gets down to the end, you mentioned Lindley is coming from where and going where? From outside, came in the door and walked, walked right past me. And, and as she does this, does she say anything to you or Ben? No, no. Do you, do you see anything in her hands? I'm, at that time, no. Well, and let me ask you this, were you paying attention to her? I really wasn't. I was looking at a rack full of a lot of snakes. <clears throat> she goes by you and heads in, in the direction of Ben? Yeah. Okay, tell us what happens next. Um, so like I said, I was looking at a whole lot of snakes. Um, and then I heard a shot come out, um, which inside there was extremely loud. So I kind of ducked a little bit and I looked down through there. And she was at the end of the uh, corridor, whatever you want to call it, posed up like this with the gun. Uh, and so you hear one shot and react to that. Yeah. And then look down to where they're at. Right. And when you look down there, how is Ben positioned if you if you can see him? I, I couldn't see him at that point. Where he was at? Yeah, I, I actually couldn't see him. So he, he at least wasn't standing upright. Right. Okay. You could see her though? Right. And you said she was, she was, if you could stand up and show how she was positioned. Something, something kind of like this. Okay. And, th and then did you say you heard more shots? Um, as I turned and went out the door, um, I thought two to three more and then another one or two after I was outside. You weren't counting though, were you? I was not. But you heard, would it be fair to say, you heard several more after that initial shot? Right. Michael headed straight for his car, and a few seconds later, Lindley ran out and screamed, Let's go. In the car, Lindley was freaking out, smoking cigarettes and complaining she was nauseous. He drove her back to the spa, followed her inside, and then went to the back room and found Ashley and Lindley in a room with a shower. What, what are the two of them doing? Spraying water. Okay, and, and are they, is one of them unclothed at this point in time? Lindley. Okay, so who's spraying water on who? Um, I think Ashley had it in her hand at that point, was spraying the water, yeah. And what were the two, what, what conversation then occurred between the three of you, if any? 
Um, I opened up the door and I asked her, uh, does, does she know what just happened? And she said something to the effect of, I already, I already told her, or I'm telling her, or something like that. Um, and, uh, and so I just I told her I really didn't have anyone to, to talk to them ever again at this point, and I, I turned and I left. Well, actually, first, I guess, they asked me, would you take some of this? And they were referring to her pile of clothes on the ground, and that was whenever I told them you know, that I didn't ever need to talk to him again, and then I left. On the way home, he realizes that Lindley left the murder weapon under the passenger seat of his car. He freaked out a little bit and then ultimately went home and hid the gun at the home of his girlfriend's mother's house inside an attic access space. On cross-examination, the defense accused Michael of going rogue and shooting Ben in front of Lindley, without her permission or foreknowledge. The defense accused him of making up the story to avoid a life sentence without parole. Michael denied lying and said his testimony had to be truthful and corroborated to earn his reduced sentence. The prosecution continued their case by calling several law enforcement officers who testified to chain of custody issues and interviews they had with Lindley prior to her arrest. The prosecution didn't play any of the interrogation videos of Lindley professing her innocence or accusing Sam Rennick of murder. This was a surprising strategy, especially given the defense's claim that she was only there to talk to Ben about divorce. It's usually powerful evidence when the jury can see the defendant giving different versions of events that contradict the evidence. This may have been a mistake by the prosecution. The defense utilized a strategy where they attacked the investigation itself, calling it a cold case because arrests hadn't been made for two and a half years. The defense also insinuated that Brandon Blackwell was only cooperative because he wanted custody of the son he shared with Lindley, and he wanted to get back at her for their breakup. The investigator was able to independently confirm some of Brandon's allegations. One piece of evidence was the fact that Lindley had to buy Michael a tank of gas out of an account the police were not aware of at the time of the murder. This was independently corroborated by bank records, and later Lindley admitted it herself and tried to use it as part of her defense strategy. She felt it was proof she wasn't on her way to murder Ben because getting gas along the way was a rookie mistake. Trooper Faust also testified that he believed while having an affair can be motive for a murder, he ultimately believed that Lindley's motivation for murder was the money. When Trooper Schaefer testified, he discussed the steps and methods used in the investigation, including offering full immunity to members of the conspiracy. The defense mostly attacked his lack of experience as a homicide investigator and attacked the investigation itself, mostly asking questions that didn't require answers. Defense counsel spent an inordinate amount of time on whether or not Ben's murder was considered a cold case or not, implying that Schaefer suborned perjury and offered immunity deals only to close a cold case. The prosecution never objected to this absurd line of questioning. Does that help you remember whether or not you described the case as cold to another individual? Well, in that, you asked if I described it as cold to Brandon, and yes, I did. And I also described it as cold to Ashley, but there was a reason behind describing it as cold for the investigation. Did you not also say that there hadn't been any substantial leads in the rent case in a year and a half? Yes. And I'm going to suggest that you took over the case in April of 2019. Does that sound correct? When you took over, now you're allowed now to make your own decisions and act independently with the Rennick case, right? I think you're being overly vague. Like, I don't work by myself. We are a unit and everything goes through my supervisor. So I'm not making calls. Just it's not me by myself making all of the calls. It's a unit and my supervisor has say. 
Lenly wasn't arrested when you took over the unit. Obviously. Is that a yes? Yes. Um, but you considered her the main suspect still? Based on the evidence, yes. Defense counsel basically accused Trooper Schaefer of witness tampering based on an admonition given to Ashley Shaw during her custodial interrogation, where she was told she would be arrested if she didn't cooperate. Well, I'll just cut to the chase. Shaw says, yeah. I said, the reason we're here and the reason that you're here is you've been implicated in being part of Ben's death, and I want you to hear me out before you say anything. She says, okay. I said, we've talked to the prosecutor, okay, and the prosecutor is willing, if you are 100% honest, to get and give information in this homicide that helps us solve it, basically he's willing to work with you. Otherwise, you would be accessory to first-degree murder, and first-degree murder, accessory, two is the exact same charge as first-degree murder. So we're here because we have information that you helped plan and actually took part in an attempt on Ben's life before Ben was actually killed. So I just want to put that out there and go back and let you be 100% honest on what happened because we know a lot of what happened. Uh, there are arrests going to be made, and then that ends the page. Okay, what does it say on the, next, on the following page, officer? Today people are going to jail for the first degree murder. Uh, we've got the warrants typed up and ready to be sent out, so it's basically now is the time you're either on Team Lindley or you're on Team Missouri, and Team Lindley is going to jail. They're going to prison for first-degree murder, so it's your opportunity. We're not here by surprise. You're here. We've got other people talking to other, to other investigators, talking to other people, so that's where we're at right now. No more bullshit. The rubber meets the road. Uh, you have one opportunity, and it's right here, right now. As soon as we leave this room, if you don't tell us exactly what happened, you're not leaving. She said, I need an attorney. Based on these few statements made to Ashley Shaw, the defense accused Trooper Schaefer of witness tampering. As if leveraging testimony from corroborating witnesses isn't a standard practice in most investigations. Defense counsel ended his cross-examination of Trooper Schaefer by making him confirm that Brandon Blackwell had been charged with a dozen counts of violating the restraining order against Lindley, thus proving he had a motive to hurt Lindley. Next, the prosecution put Lindsay Kerber on the stand. She was Ben and Lindley's financial advisor, sold them an insurance policy, and had knowledge of the inner workings of Ben's family trust. Miss Kerber testified that she personally met with Ben and Lindley regarding the million-dollar life insurance policy. Lindley knew that she was the sole beneficiary of the life insurance, and in the event she was incapacitated or unable to receive the benefits, they would then go equally to Matthew and Amelia Rennick. On cross-examination, the defense wanted to distance Lindley from the details of Ben's trust. They disagreed with the prosecution's contention that Lindley was going to receive the money from Ben's life insurance, as long as she wasn't involved in the murder. They didn't go into the details that Lindley only agreed to relinquish her claim on the insurance proceeds after prolonged litigation. And what is the Slayer statute in Missouri? That if you are, I believe, found guilty of harming the individual, um, that you cannot benefit from that person's death financially. You, you kill somebody, and you're, in you're the beneficiary, you don't get the money. Correct. And so in this case, Ms. Rennick, under the law, is not entitled to that money. Correct. And there was litigation involving her children and where that money should go. But she, at the time of Ben's death, was entitled to it as long as she didn't kill. Correct. I don't have any other questions. Briefly, Your Honor. Didn't Lenley Rennick voluntarily waive any right to the life insurance? I believe eventually she did. Okay. By eventually, that's a yes, right? Yes. So she's, she voluntarily agreed to not get any of the million dollars from that life insurance policy? Yes. With that, the prosecution rested their case in chief. The defense made a motion for full acquittal, which was denied. Then the defense began their case in chief. They started with a series of witnesses who were personally known to Lindley Rennick. They were her close friends, and close friends of her father, who stated Lindley was a complete wreck after Ben's death. 
She wouldn't eat, and several times had to be briefly hospitalized for panic attacks. Facing a murder trial can apparently be stressful. On cross, the witnesses ultimately agreed that Lindley didn't share all components of her life with them. They were unaware she had been engaged in several extramarital affairs at the time of Ben's murder. Nor did they know that she had witnessed Ben's murder. Lindley's father, Lindell Gallatin, testified on his daughter's behalf. He told the jury that Lindley and Ben were a happy couple. He loved Ben and thought he was the nicest man, best husband and father to his daughter and grandchildren. He was surprised to learn that Lindley wanted to divorce Ben. He did not like Michael Humphrey and believed he acted independently in Ben's murder. He described Lindley as catatonic after Ben's murder and unable to function. On cross-examination, he admitted that Lindley was capable of lying to him and had left out many details of her life. He confirmed that Lindley never asked him either on June 8th or prior to June 8th if she and the children could come and live with him. He definitely wasn't expecting her and the children to come and live with him the night of Ben's murder. However, Lindley did go and live with him for a year right after Ben's murder. Lindley also resided with him for the year she was free on bail with an ankle monitor. He insensitively described it as no way to live, and not his definition of freedom, forgetting that Ben is no longer living at all. Next, the defense called Lindley Rennick to the stand. She was a great witness on her own behalf, showing her charm and vulnerability. She had an answer for all of the evidence against her, mostly blaming it all on the manipulation of Ashley Shaw, including her acts of cheating. She started out giving background on herself, laughing and making jokes at her own expense, discussing her poor taste in men. She denied asking Michael to kill Ben. She testified that she only wanted help in telling Ben she was leaving him and was shocked when Michael shot Ben. She explained to the jury that she often left her phone up at the front desk, where Ashley Shaw sat. She went into the story of how she and Ben met, what a wonderful father he was, and how the spa wasn't making money, but they were personally covering the bills each month by selling a few snakes. In March of 2017, she sent Ben a text message asking him if they should close down the spa. He told her he wasn't ready to give up on her dream and agreed to keep funding the spa for a few more months. She described for the jury how she met Ashley Shaw and asked her to come and work for her at Essentia. Lindley is small in stature and comes off naive and innocent. Despite being the boss, she deferred to Ashley in all things, including her personal life. And it sounds like Ashley had more of that dominating leader personality that lended itself to the running of a business. She did, yes. Do you regret trusting Ashley Shaw with that responsibility? Um, I, no, I, you know, not really. I, I regret that I didn't take more time to prepare myself better to run a business. Um, but I mean, she did the best that she could and I don't, I don't know any other situation that we would have been able to work it out. This is what's known as the Svengali defense. It's where a defendant states they were under the influence and control of another person, and therefore coerced into questionable or even criminal behavior and decisions. She told the jury how she would argue with Ben over Facebook, and if she had to go and do a massage, Ashley would continue the argument for her so it wasn't out of the ordinary that Ashley continued responding to Ben the day of his murder. Lindley, with a quiver in her voice, described the many affairs she engaged in while working at the spa. She told the jury she regretted all of them. Of course, the third affair she was having with Brandon Blackwell was Ashley Shaw's fault. Ashley allegedly wasn't a fan of how Eric Bremer was handling their advertising for the spa. She didn't like a certain ad that led to Ashley forcing Lindley to open an Ashley Madison account. What about the third affair? Um, the third affair was Brandon Blackwell, um, and I had met him on 
Ashley Madison just um, shortly before um, Ben was murdered. Uh, what prompted you to get an Ashley Madison account? That's kind of a long story, but I'll try to. <laughs> um, well, whose idea was it? Um, so Ashley Shaw. Um, I get here. I'm. Is it okay if I? Go ahead. Okay. Um, Eric Brimmer and I had been having a pretty lengthy affair, um, and you know, obviously with the business relationship that we had, having this affair, um, and then just kind of personal feelings towards each other, um, you know, and confiding in each other, building. Um, Ashley felt like Eric was really. Um, falling short on helping us with our marketing and our advertisement like we should. She had heard one of the radio advertisements that we um, that the, they had done for the spa and it was you know she said it was just really inappropriate and so she played it for me and I listened to it and, and I sent a message out to them and I agreed with her but it was things like that like he wasn't sending us our um, advertisements to be checked and I was letting it go and not really keeping up on that and so that was frustrating for her um, Eric had kind of gotten this stigma and acted towards us like we really wouldn't be successful and make it in Columbia without his connections and being able to help us. And that really rubbed Ashley the wrong way um, because, you know, she had her own connections and she had done things to set us up. I had made a lot of connections for us in Columbia with different businesses and organizations. And so, um, but you know, with this kind of train wreck that's happening with, you know, Ben and I arguing and my marriage going down the drain and the spa is just failing and I'm having this affair with this guy and, you know, all of this is slacking. Um, and at that time when I set it up, you know, I had already kind of talked to Ashley about, you know, wanting to separate and divorce. And so she thought that, um, it would be a good idea for, and we both set up Ashley Madison accounts. I don't think she ever did anything with hers, but we set them up together and she thought it would be a good distraction for me to just get my mind off of this Ben Eric, like business saga that's going on. So set it up and um, that's where I met Brandon. Lindley testified that even though the affairs were all of Ashley's fault, they weren't the reason she wanted to leave Ben, and they certainly weren't motivation to murder her husband. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Then she testified that the alleged sexual abuse by Ben was actually one incident that she became aware of when Ben told her that she didn't wake up when he tried to have sex with her, which apparently shocked and stunned her into silence. Later, she accused him of making her feel like he only wanted to use her body, which we know was already in regular use with everyone but her husband. Ben apologized to her over Facebook Messenger, apologizing for making her feel like he was mad at her for not wanting to have sex with him, and promised to never do it again, assuring her she meant more to him than just someone to have sex with. Then she told the jury about the one incident where Ben physically abused her. Ben and I had been arguing at the house. Um, our house was kind of an open floor plan, so when you walk in, it's living room, dining room, kitchen. It's all right there. And um, we were kind of back in the kitchen area arguing. Um, he was upset about um, an argument that or I guess not an argument, but some stuff that was going on between he and Sam, um, and then Robin not paying, and then also finding out that I had started smoking again. And um, Maddie and Emma were sitting on the couch watching TV, and um, you know our voices started to raise a little bit more just from arguing about it. And so I told him I just wanted to talk about it later after the kids were in bed, and I went to walk away. Um, and he grabbed my arm and pushed me into the refrigerator and was like, I'm not done with this. We're going to finish it now. Um, and then I believe, you know, the TV or Maddie or Emma, just some sort of sound. And I think that, you know, Ben realized like, okay, the kids are right there. Um, I let my arm go. And I just went and I sat on the couch with him um, for the rest of the evening. That was when she decided they had different values and priorities, and she no longer wanted to be married to Ben. 
She checked with Ashley, and they decided Ben held too much power in the relationship, and would hold even more power in the divorce. So obviously, murder was the answer. She told the jury that Ashley was familiar with her dating history, had found Michael on the computer, and suggested he would make a great killer after their protein shake poisoning failed. Two days before Ben's murder, Lindley texted Ben, asking what time the rat supplier arrived at Rennick Reptile. It's hard to blame this one on Ashley, yet she does have a creative explanation. This is also where she contradicts herself and doesn't catch it. She originally testified she didn't know whether Michael would be available on the day of the 8th or not. She didn't even know if his car would get him to the spa that day, let alone all the way out to Rennick Reptiles. Yet she is asking about the rat supplier to make sure he is in a good mood to talk divorce. Why? Well, let me ask you this. Did you send that message because you didn't want there to be a witness to a murder you were planning to commit? No. Why did you send, Why did you ask Ben when the rat supplier was coming? Um, so part of having snakes, we um, feed live rats as much as possible, but getting that has always been kind of an ordeal, and especially since Robin was buying the company and we weren't selling anything, and he had orders under Robin to breed everything that he could, um, Ben was trying to feed up as much as possible. Um, now, feeding days in the facility are already kind of different. It's a pretty stressful day for Ben because um, really nothing else can be done with the snakes on those days. You don't want to move them um, for breeding. You can't clean them on those days. They really need to just stay put because they would stress out and not eat. Um, and so knowing like that we were going to have a reliable rodent breeder, knowing how much we had, um, it was a huge stressor for Ben and then in turn me because on feeding days that Ben had, like he was going to be more angry at the end of the day and agitated, especially if our rodent breeder didn't show up on time and Ben knew that he was going to have to work late um, in order to get everything fed. Um, I sent it just wanting to know what kind of mood I was going to be walking into when I got home from work. See? Told you it was creative. She just wanted Ben in a good mood. The loving messages and nudes were also to get him primed and ready to go for that same divorce talk. Isn't that standard practice divorce talk 101? They definitely weren't to show what a loving, non-murdery wife she was, while she planned to ambush him with a marriage-ending talk in front of a strange man he didn't know. Focusing back on June 8th, the day Ben was killed, you guys were texting and Facebook messaging on that day, too. Yes. And I think you were present and saw when the state showed a lot of those messages to the jury. Yes. You were affectionate to Ben. Yes. You said, I love you. Yes. You sent him nude pictures of yourself. Yes. Why would you do that if you were planning on asking him for a divorce later that day? Um, I think, you know, obviously, as I've already just stated, I just have a really unhealthy sexual relationship with my body. And that has always been kind of a means of diffusing conflict or confrontation. Um, he's my husband. I know he's going to enjoy nude pictures of me. He had in the past. Um, and selfishly, I wanted to make sure that he was going to be in a good mood when I went to go talk to him and confront him about this. You and Ben had argued about you not showing him enough sexual attention in the past, right? Yes. Um, that was a source of contention in your relationship? Yes. So just like why you asked when feeding day was, you wanted him to not already be in a bad mood when you had to have this hard conversation with him. Yes. She was also texting with several other men that day. She asked Michael Humphrey if his car was fixed and if he was going to be able to make it. And by it, she meant that alleged hard divorce talk and definitely not shooting Ben four times in the back and four times in the face at point-blank range. She went on to describe the events of Ben's definitely not planned shocking murder. Her recollection of Ben's murder are slightly different than Michael's recollection. I walked into the 
walked, you know, down the aisle, and I walked up behind um, Michael. Ben was back around the corner, and Michael was standing kind of the way that the aisles are set up. There's just a small space to um, walk through to get to where Ben was, so Michael was standing right there, and I walked up right, right behind Michael. I'm sorry. And then... Michael turned around, and I saw a gun in his hands, and then I heard shots ring out, and I screamed, and I ran outside. And then I heard more shots go off, and everything just went numb, and I remember staring at the trees, and then Michael running out of the facility and pushing me towards the car. And telling me, we have to go, Lindley, get in the car. We have to go now. Did you have any idea what... Did you know Michael had a gun? No. Did you have any idea he was going to pull out that gun and use it to shoot Ben? No. What were you thinking and feeling after hearing those shots and running outside? wasn't thinking or feeling anything. While testifying, Lindley continually took deep breaths and licked her lips over a dozen times. Body experts believe licking your lips is a sign of overt lying. You often find it on a top 10 list of how to tell if someone is lying or not. Their anxiety and stress levels kick in, and this causes the liar to have a dry mouth when spelling lies. This is also where Lindley's catatonic fugue state begins and she can't remember anything that hurts her credibility. She was so unsure that after Ashley showered her down and helped to dress her into clean clothes, she continued texting dead Ben as if he were still alive, because Ashley forcefully told her that, quote, everything would be fine, end quote. Before we got, you know, out into our cars, Ashley had told me, everything's okay, Lindley. You were here, you never left, and everything's okay. And so I had to stop and get gas in my car. I was just standing there, just like this, nothing happened. Everything's fine. You kind of latched on to that statement Ashley told you. It's going to be okay. You never left the spa. Yes. Are any of you buying this? Yeah, me neither. Nonetheless, she proceeded in her everything-will-be-okay mantra, which coincidentally helped to explain away the acts that could otherwise be seen as a pre-planned, premeditated first-degree murder. She glossed over the part where her son was screaming and asking if someone had killed Daddy. She called her own father and had him take the kids back to his house. They were killing her vibe and stealing her thunder. She wanted to focus on her own performance of a heartbroken widow, while she counted the insurance money in her head. Once everyone saw her hyperventilate, they took her off to the hospital to check her blood pressure, closed the ambulance doors, and... end scene. While Lindley's performance was skillful that day, her best acting was on the stand in her own defense. It was almost flawless. Lindley, I think the question we're all wondering is why didn't you come clean to the police that night? Why didn't you tell them that you had been there at the facility and Michael Humphrey had shot your husband? I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to face it. And when I came in after Sam had turned Ben over and said that he was still alive. His face just looked like he had been beaten so badly. And I was just really lost on what actually did happen because I know I saw a gun. I know I heard it. But now my husband looks like he's just been beat. And when I asked the officers what happened, they said they didn't know. And I just didn't tell them anything. 
Do you regret that? Yes. Do you regret lying to them? Yes. Lindley ended her direct testimony blaming everything on Brandon Blackwell for spilling the details of Lindley's worst-kept secret, and on Ashley Shaw for confirming its truthfulness. You might imagine on cross-examination the prosecutor held her convenient memory loss against her, or at least expressed the incredulity at her catatonic fugue state. You would be wrong. Lindley testified she spent the next year after Ben's murder, sitting on a swing in her father's backyard, looking at trees, wishing she could be a better engaged mother. But she couldn't, because this is the Lindley show, and she wasn't done having panic attacks, hooking up in cars with married lovers, or getting pregnant in between skipping meals. Everyone was worried about Lindley. Just the way she liked it. On cross, Lindley played dumb, answered the questions that weren't asked, and sidestepped direct questioning with a lot of unrelated details, which the prosecution let her get away with. They already had a first-degree murder conviction against Michael Humphrey, with only Ashley's testimony. That was before he gave up the murder weapon. The prosecution allowed Lindley to get away with these tactics entirely too much. Perhaps they thought they had a similar conviction in the bag. If you're willing to lie to the police about such a vital matter, why should these jurors now believe you? I was lying to protect myself, and I told a lot of really awful lies just to do that. But it's just too heavy, and it's too much. And so much bad has come from trying to hide behind those lies. So I understand what the prosecutor's saying about all of the lies that I told, but all I can do now is just sit up here and tell the truth. And at least I will have gotten it out and I won't have to carry it anymore. I mean, she's good, right? Especially that little breathy quiver at the end. The defense had a lot to work with. It's easy to see why they put her on the stand. What isn't easy to understand is why the prosecution didn't stop her. They didn't repeatedly object when it was clear she was going to give self-serving, frail-sounding speeches rather than give honest, direct answers. After Lindley's final performance, the defense rested their case and immediately made a motion for a directed verdict. And I'm surprised they didn't make a motion nominating her for a daytime Emmy. The motion was denied, and each side gave lackluster closing arguments. The prosecution's best argument was to remind the jury that there is a victim in this case, and it's not Lindley Rennick. It's Ben Rennick. He won't get to see his children grow up. He doesn't get to live his life, a life stolen from him out of selfishness and greed. The defense closed by blaming everyone but Lindley. They reminded the jury what an amazing mother Lindley was, and how much she needed her children, and how much they needed her. Despite all of the clear evidence that this was a cold and calculated, premeditated murder, the jury convicted Lindley Rennick of second-degree murder. Perhaps they thought that that was a fair compromise since Michael's sentence was being reduced to second-degree murder. In the state of Missouri, the jury also deliberates on the defendant's sentence. This is called the penalty phase of the trial. They are given a guideline and can't come back with less than the minimum or more than the maximum. In this case, the minimum was 13 years on the low end and life with parole on the high end. During the penalty phase, both sides were allowed to put on direct testimony. Usually the defense will call the defendant's family begging for mercy and the prosecution will put on the victim's family begging for justice. The defense put on Lindley's father, stepmother, and sister, who all cried on the stand that Lindley was too fragile to survive prison. They argued her children needed her, 
and her son was angry and upset at losing his father, and now losing his mother too. The prosecution phoned this part in too. They didn't call Sam Rennick to the stand despite him being present each day in court, sitting in the front row and silently weeping for his brother. They just went up and asked for the maximum sentence allowed. Which they didn't get. Incredibly, the jury recommended the minimum sentence of 13 years in prison for Ben's murder with an additional three years for a gun charge. Lindley burst into tears and mouthed thank yous to the jury. No doubt tears of happiness that she will see life again outside the bars of a prison. Judge Crane sentenced Lindley to serve her sentences consecutively, which means Ben's life was only worth 16 years, minus any applicable sentence reductions for good behavior. Lindley's attorneys didn't make the obligatory motion for a new trial, waiving her right to an appeal. They know it's not only possible, but likely that on a real trial, she could get a life sentence. During sentencing, Sam Rennick gave a moving victim impact statement. He stated Lindley covered up her actions for years, and she told countless lies to protect herself and deceive others about her involvement in her brother's cold murder. He told the courtroom that the sight of Ben's body on the floor will haunt him for the rest of his days. He stated what she did to her children is unforgivable. He stated the waves of this tragedy travel far. He ended by telling Lindley she is, and always will be, a murderer. The jury showed Lindley the mercy in life she never showed Ben. Mercy that, arguably, could end in deadly consequences. We know what Lindley is willing to do for money. We have seen how she removes obstacles in her life. The motive for Ben's murder was always money. It was always greed. It was always Lindley's wants and needs over everyone else in her life, including her children. There is a good chance her children could still be minors when she gets out of prison. Once Lindley is released from prison, the only people standing in the way of her and Ben's money are her very own children. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Trials. Our regular release schedule will be every other Monday. If you are interested in supporting our show, please recommend our podcast to a friend, post about us on your social media accounts, or consider leaving us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. 